So, James says, James chapter 5, by the way, so much for the commercial, let's jump right in. What do you say? James says that your faith has to work. And as we have been looking now for almost 30 weeks, James lays out for us a variety of points in living where our faith has to work. In other words, it, it is not enough for us to have a mental or a, just a, an intellectual body of stuff that we check off and say, yes, I believe that, and then we live our lives as if it makes no difference. That's kind of like algebra for most of us. Not you engineers, I get that, but, but most of I, I took algebra in high school. I still haven't used algebra, okay? And if I have the occasion to, I will avoid it. I don't do algebra. But many of us approach our faith that way, and so we just kind of lock it away in our head, and it's this body of information that we ascribe to, and then we live our lives as if it's just another piece of algebraic formula in our head, spiritually speaking. James says that is not biblical faith. That is not the kind of life that we're called to live as children of God. And so as we've been looking now for three different weeks, or this is the third week, James says your faith has to work in your prayer life. But what about when it doesn't? Because sometimes it won't. When your faith doesn't work in your prayer life and you find yourself in a situation where you want to believe and you want to be able to act like that belief matters, but you just don't have it in you, what then? You know, I've been here almost five years now as a matter of fact, uh, five years ago to this day, we were in the final stages of discussion with, with, discussing with the pastor search committee from this church, and I was in the Rio Grande Valley, and we were beginning to uh, dance a little bit and figure out if we could be married. In those five years since I've been here, I have on numerous occasions been called to the bedside, whether in a hospital room or an intensive care unit, or a hospice room, or bedrooms of people who were almost certainly drawing their last breaths, or at least so it seemed. What do you say to a parent whose child is told by, or who are told by doctors their child may not live through the night? What do you say to somebody how do you pray when you're the one who gets called out into that situation? What do you say? How do you pray? What possibly can you do to help those people? But what I want you to get from that is those people prove the point that there are times that we find ourselves in situations when as much as we want to believe, our faith just doesn't seem to pray well. Let me give you full disclosure this morning. I, I know, I don't want you to take this wrong, but uh, so hear me all the way through, okay, before you get offended. Uh, I know that I'm really supposed to be the professional theologian here. Well, not just me, 
but those of us who are on pastoral staff here, one of the things that you require of us is to be able to handle scripture well and to live responsibly handling theology, but also to teach that out. And ultimately, the senior pastor of any church is the one responsible in that church for good doctrinal, biblical, theologically consistent kind of operations. That's my responsibility. And so when I'm the one who's called to a hospital room like that, or if I'm the one who you call to come to your home because of something going on there that has you beyond yourself and you just need the pastor to pray with you, you need to know that professionally, theologically, I can do that. I can come in and I, as we've been studying through and trying to work our way through prayer and understanding that it is a positioning tool for us in our relationship with God, I can step into your painful situation and I can understand that we begin with the sovereignty of God. God, you are God, I'm not, I don't intend to tell you what to do in this circumstance. I get that, I I can do that for you. But when I receive the phone call, From my son, who says, maybe it's just better if I just step off into traffic. That's a little harder for me to be good theologically professional. When I receive the phone call from my daughter, and then just hours later stand in her room and hear a doctor say, the next 24 hours are critical and if we can get you through those 24 hours, we think you'll be okay. I have a hard time being good consistently theological in that circumstance in my prayer life. See, I can do it well for you. But when I'm the one whose faith is failing and praying is hard, I'm not too good at that. Last July, When my grandson, who had been born two months premature, we finally, after a while, I don't remember how many days it was, we were finally able to go into the neonatal intensive care unit where Declan was at a whopping two pounds and a handful of ounces. And he was in one of those incubators and we couldn't touch him directly and so we had to reach in and it seemed like it had some of those robotic kind of gloves, felt very... Space, spaceish, and I reached in and I put my hands on him. You can be sure that my prayer was not, God, take him if you want him. How do you pray when your faith is failing? James has, hey, he surprises me. Actually, I'm a little bit shocked. Because throughout the course of this little letter, and we're now almost all the way through it, but throughout the course of this, he has systematically, in one area of our life and our living our faith out after another, he has said to us, you do this and you be this. And sometimes he has been incredibly in your face, smack dab punching us in the throat. Here's how you have to live. But now we get to this, your faith has to work in your prayer life and especially in our struggles of life and he gives us a workaround. It's an interesting thing to me. James, who has been so in our face now, 
provides us this workaround for failing faith. And here's the workaround. He says, when you find yourself in that situation that I just talked about, he said, you need to get somebody else to pray for you. James chapter 5, we find ourselves in verses 14 and 15, and I'll just tell you, we won't make it to 15 today, so when I read it here in just a few minutes, get a good dose of it, all right? Because it'll be a couple of weeks before we come back to it. But in verse 14, James says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, typically, we as Baptists, I guess I should read verse 15, huh? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiving. Now, what we have here is James throwing out some landmines for us. They're theological landmines, to be sure. And it's really important that we approach this in the right way because there's a lot of inconsistencies that you will hear out there and maybe even in here. It's a good time for us to handle Scripture well. It is not enough. You've heard me say this many, many times. It is not enough for us to fight about the the value of Scripture. And Baptists love to fight, and especially we love to fight about God's Word. It is not enough. It is not sufficient to fight about it. We need to handle Scripture well. And handling these two verses is not an easy task. And it's mishandled much of the time. So let's look a little bit at it. Let me just start off by saying that this whole idea that James is driving for us is really not foreign to us. As a matter of fact, I think as Christians in our day, and especially as us as Baptists, uh, we love to embrace this. We love to pray for other people. Well, or at least we like to be on the list of other people who are praying for us. One of the things, let me just kind of peel back the covers, open the windows, let a little light in so that you can understand what happens in deacons meetings around here. Now you should know, okay, that I have been pastor. Uh, this is the, only the second church that I've been a pastor of. You probably figured that out by now. Um, but I've been part of, part of church work as pastoral staff for many, many years now and measuring in decades now. And I have been in some nutso deacons meetings, I have been in some where it would have been better if a flamethrower would have been just walked into the door and killed us all. Not at this church, but in other churches, to be sure. So let me let you in on what one of the things that happens in deacons' meetings here. As far as I know, and I've been here almost five years now, as far as I know, there's not a single deacons' meeting that I've been a part of in this church, but that we started with prayer requests. You need to know as a church that your deacons pray for you. And I like that about them. There is that awareness that our deacons have that one of their primary functions as caregivers in this church and as peace builders in this church is to lift up the body of Christ in prayer. I like that about them. But I know they're not the only ones who do that. We have a lot of people in our church who make it a regular practice to pray for other people in our church. And so, you know, I've kind of spoken a little bit lightheartedly about some of that. You remember my discussion about Aunt Susie's corn on her toe and, you know, corn in between her toes and, you know, those problems. And and that's all kind of lighthearted, but the reality is that there's a place for that. We need to be praying for each other. We get that. 
We do that fairly well. But James is taking us deeper here. This is not just about, okay, we need to pray for so-and-so. This is a situation that is actually almost, well, I guess we could say the way he writes this is there is a sense of urgency that undergirds what he's talking about here. And so James says in verse 14, we're going to spend all of our time now in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And the thrust of what he says there is there's a problem here and something needs to be done about it. It's it's a little unfortunate that our translation here, the English translation, is sick. Because as true as that is for the word that's used here, the word actually is broader in meaning. The word here means to be weak. The picture that we have here, and the connotation is sickness to be sure, but the the way the word is used and the way he talks about this expands it in a deeper level for us. The picture is of someone who is so weak under the strain of life or under a particular illness that they can't get off of the bed even. All of us know people like that. All of us know that life has a way of taking its toll on us. As I said in the early service, I'll say here, if you're not weak and if you're not this person and you're not underneath it all, then just stay tuned. It's coming. Your turn is coming. I just wanted to make your day with that good piece of information. Life has a way of dishing out life on us. You know, over the last week, Teresa and I found our way out to Slodetha, Odessa. And, and this came home for me in a fresh way. Had a series of discussions with family members that I hope I never have to repeat again. One of those was with my mother-in-law who's weak and not well. And she needs someone to lift her up. That's the picture here. You you do know, don't you, that the reality of life is that when we find ourselves in this situation, our world just starts shrinking on us. I've had the occasion many times to go into either of the two hospitals in Beaumont that typically our folks go to and to go deep into the inner bowels of the hospital to the intensive care units, to those rooms where life seems to be hanging on a thread. You know that when you're the one in there, That room's all you got. Before you ever get there, your world is this big. But when you find yourself in the condition that James is talking about here, your world gets to be this big and that's all you see. Life has a way of stepping in on us. And it's, while we're young, it's hard for us to see that. The money's flowing and the good times are flowing and family life around us is good, but all it takes is one misturn on a four-wheeler. All it takes is one person running a red light. All it takes is one little incident and all of a sudden your world that was here suddenly is here. And those are the kind of things that have a way of making us weak and sick. 
when you get there, you need help praying sometimes. James acknowledges that. That's the beginning point of what he's talking about. It's interesting that in verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? I'm not going to re-preach that verse because we've already been through it. But he opens with saying, when you're not well and you're not doing okay, then you need to pray for yourself. That's verse 13, first part of it. But now verse 14, he comes in and he recognizes, acknowledging for us that there are those times that we can't pray for ourselves. It's as if we just don't have it in us. And when you're there, who are you going to call? And so now we get, oh, James, I wish he'd have written more here, but I, then I wouldn't have anything to preach, I guess. So here, here's part of the deal. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? The next part of the verse, let him call the elders of the church. Okay, so here's our dilemma. I have grown up in Baptist churches And I can't tell you how many times that I have heard this verse quoted and pushed as a way of saying, okay, here's what you do. You call, okay, now there's the dilemma. Who do you call in a Baptist church? You see, if we're going to take this extremely literally, then at least we should be consistent and take it extremely literally all the way through it, okay? Because... If we're going to take this verse literally, then this sermon is over. Don't get your hopes up. I'm not done. But if we take a literal interpretation, here's the literal interpretation I often get. Then, and I got this a lot with my back stuff. I still get it every once in a while. Then we just need somebody to put oil on you. Lay hands on you. Pray for you. I'm going to get to that in a minute. So we take that part literally. But we don't take literally the other part of this. And that is, James says, if you're sick like that, if you're weak like that, who do you call? Hello? The elders. So in a Baptist church, you're sunk. Nobody's coming. Nobody's going to pray because we don't have elders. So either we're going to be very literal about it or we better do some good biblical interpretation here and figure out what James is saying. You know that James is writing as almost certainly the earliest of all of the epistles, the letters of the New Testament. Now, by the time Paul comes around years later, it's not that Paul's not around, but the writings of Paul, and they start to surface, Paul is going to take some of this stuff and and breathe some more life into it, okay? So there's this development of thought that is occurring, and better said, there's a development of the organization level of a church that occurs from the time James, who writes earliest, through Paul, through all of that stuff, there's this development of the way a church is organized. And Paul will write about the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul will write in those gifts, he will talk about some of those uh, administrative kind of gifts and those ministerial kind of gifts. And and all of those things, Paul kind of develops where they are. James doesn't have all of that at his disposal. What he does is he draws, this is written to churches in Jerusalem, and so he draws from their Jewish synagogue background. And so James pulls this term over, not just the term, but they pulled it over into that earliest of church, and that is out of the Jewish synagogue, there were those elders, you can read that, old dudes, 
But it's more than just old dudes. There's a lot of old dudes in any church, most churches. (laughs) One of the old dudes just said amen. But it's not enough just to be old. These guys are actually leaders in the church. It's an office in the early church. So what James is saying here, if we want to get beyond just the surface level and dive down a little bit deeper into it, what James is saying is when you find yourself at that point where life has taken its toll and you're weak, you're sick, you can't pray for yourself, you got failing faith at that point. It's not a, that's not a judgmental statement, that's just reality. When you're there, who are you going to call? James says, you better call the leadership of the church. It's not just one or two guys in our time. We don't have elders in our church. We have pastor. We have uh, uh, support uh, staff. We have pastoral staff. We have deacons. I would even add into this to get the spirit of what James is driving at. Even your Sunday school teacher fits into this category. If we're doing Sunday school right, that is. James is saying when you find yourself there and your world gets to be this big, do not go it alone. But you see, with that, now James is pulling us back into that bigger picture of how he's written this whole little letter. It is about the church. You, as an individual, have responsibilities ethically, morally, all of those kind of things, the way you behave yourself, but it's bigger than just that. It is also that bigger part that says, I am one piece of the body. So when he says, call the elders of the church, what James is saying is, call those people who are in leadership positions. Now, here's here's my concern for us. This is why I I titled this sermon the way I did. Now, any of y'all read, just let's do it quick test for me. Anybody read the title of the sermons on the billboard during the week on the sign out there? Okay. You should know that I purposely, I used to not title my sermons at all. Uh, It's hard to do that when you wait until the second song of the music service to study. Um, uh, But one of the things that I try to do with that is use that because we have thousands of cars that pass in front of this church every day. And I try to use that as kind of a hook to go, what are they preaching at that church? They let some knucklehead loose up there. So the title for today's sermon is Which which Doctor Prayers? With a question mark. Now here's the reason I chose that title. One of the abuses of this verse is for us to feel like or think that these leaders, elders, if you use the term that he pulls here, have some value in and of themselves that makes their prayers more powerful. Now, I want to be careful here because I do know what verse 16 says and 17, and, there, and we, I'm not going to take time to get into that today. But if we, okay, which doctor, you understand which doctor term? I know that we're like East Texas, almost Louisiana. So how about voodoo priest? Does that communicate well? Hello? Okay. Now, where I came from, we use the term curandera. You know what that means? It means voodoo priest. (laughs) 
But the picture of this is that person who somehow has, now this is all erroneous, just so you know, I know that, but the, the mindset is that it's that person who somehow has some special mystical ability to call in the good spirits and ward off the evil spirits, or if he's praying against a particular individual, then we're going to pray these evil spirits onto you. And I'm not pointing at Brian, that's more that way, okay? So the picture that sometimes we get, it's actually a picture we have to paint for ourselves because James is not painting it here. But the picture that we often paint for ourselves is that when we call this person, there's some kind of sense of godliness that that person has just by virtue of the title that they carry. You know me well enough to know that you don't get more of God when I show up in a room. Don't you know that? It's okay. I set it up. That's, I, I tee them up and you smack them down the course. Okay. You just don't get that with me or anybody else. And so in doing this, what is James saying? If it's not about pulling in the A-team to pray, then what is he saying? And I think we get to that. We'll put this in, in conjunction with the anointing thing here in just a second. I think what James is saying for us here is that that person, that leader of the congregation, comes not because he's something special. He comes out of his office representing the church at large. So go back to that picture that I tried to give you of a person whose world now is this big and they're confined to a bed because they just don't have the mental, physical, spiritual energy to get up and function. And so this person who has been chosen by that church as a leader spiritually there, that person walks to the bedside of the person who is underneath it all and he brings with him symbolically all of the church behind him. And so suddenly, the small world of the sick person is enlarged. And the picture that we have now is of one individual on behalf of many who say to the person, we have not forgotten you. And God has not forgotten you. And so we come to pray. So far, so good, but now James gets a little weird for me. Let's do a little audience survey here. How many of you like to be touched? No, let me rephrase that. How many of you don't like to be touched? Okay, now I'm going to join you, all right? I don't really want people touching me. I know a bunch of you comedians now are going to start touching me every time you walk by. I know that, okay? (laughs) My life's hard. Um, But I'm not really a touchy guy, okay? Just say hi. I'm good with that. I know that's a connection. You don't have to touch me. It's all good, okay? Um, So imagine my feelings when I go to a church. This was um, not even, I don't know, maybe less than a year ago. I don't remember when it was. Um, I just remember the moment because I'd gone to church. I was off on vacation, and so I'd gone to church where... Uh, some relatives of mine were members and so I go to this church not a Baptist church and I'll go in and at the end of the service I'm thinking what everybody else thinks it's lunch Uh, 
And as I'm trying to walk out, suddenly I find myself surrounded by these weirdos. Now, they look like regular people, but they, they proved, so they just wanted to touch me, and, and it bothered me. I'm a visitor at a church, don't want people touching me anyway, and I turn around, and I'm surrounded by these people. And this one lady, woman, excuse me, says, we understand that you're having some back problems. Okay, somebody's been talking, yes. And she says, I have all of my life, I have had a healing ministry through prayer. And so, we're going to lay hands on you. Now, first of all, they had already laid hands on me. We're going to lay hands on you and pray for you, and God's going to heal you. That was the most awkward, I don't know, five minutes, five hours, I don't know, it seemed like forever, of my life with these complete strangers, walked up to me, put their hands on me, and they're praying. <clears throat> and they used this verse. Let him call the elders of the church and let them... Now, the translation here says pray over them. But many people take one of the options here. There's three options of how to, how to interpret this to say they lay hands on them. Now, again, if we're going to be very literal, at least we need to do good Bible study in doing that. And so there's three options, any of which it can be. Just so you know, the construction here, there's two words that James puts together here. They're not used together anywhere else in the New Testament. So we don't have anything to go by. So three options, all of them are valid. Pray over, lay hands on, pr just pray for. That's the three options. So these people decided that it must be lay hands on and pray. And so they prayed. You know what they asked me when that torture session was over for me? Here's the question. How do you feel? I, my back hurts. I've been standing here while you've been praying for me. That's the worst thing I could do for my back. Of course my back hurts. But see, that's not the answer they were looking for. Now, why do you think, in their perspective, my back didn't get healed in those prayers? Because I didn't have enough faith. Now, we're going to get to that next time, not next week, because we're going to be at Adventure Kingdom next week. So two weeks from now, we'll get to the verse 15 part of it. I just want you to hear that to say what we immediately jump to, this is about laying hands on somebody. That's not what this is about. Let me ask you, here's a test for us. Let's be consistent in our theology. Do you believe that God can heal somebody from a distance? All right, good answer. Do you believe that you have to be with somebody in order to pray for them? No, good answer. So why then would we immediately jump to in this situation that the thing we must do is to lay hands on them and pray for them? See, that's inconsistent at best. And theologically, it, man, I don't know, I could, might, might could hear a few arguments relative to that. But biblically here, it's just one of several options. So for somebody like me, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and just, let's get this, tie this one off, all right? Somebody like me, if, if you don't have to put hands on me to pray for me, just pray for me, okay? And I'll get it, okay? I understand that. If you want, well, anyway. All right, so 
Let's take another step here because we're not through with the tough stuff. The point is that it's not what the prayer does with their hands. It's that they pray. Here's the next part. Neither is it about the oil. Because this says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. Let's stop there for a second. What kind of oil? Vegetable oil? <laughs> Last Sunday, I attended church at my, my home church. That's a, not really a great way to say it because this is my home church. But um, the church where my dad pastored in Odessa and where I uh, surrendered the ministry, all that. And so uh, I was reminded while I was out there about the words of the guy. <laughs> you say, I, I don't know what kind of oil. All I got is 10W40. I'll just use that. All right, so... So, so what, what is James saying here? Do we, do we need to get somebody all oiled up for God to hear that prayer? And if so, why? See, the reality is, this is back to that witch doctor stuff. If we're just going to take this literally, first of all, why don't we do it all the time if we're going to take it literally? And secondly... Why don't we use olive oil the way it calls for here? That's the only oil that James would have known anything about. But here's another element for that. There's about nine different ways that olive oil was used in the first century that this could be talking about. So what does he mean? Is there some magical mystery oil that God wants us to use? Here's a good reminder Just as the value of the prayer is not in the person, neither is it in the oil. The value of the prayer is in the positioning. Go with me to the Old Testament where Aaron, Moses' brother, is being set apart as the priest. There are verses we know about, about the oil that they anointed him with. It ran down over his beard. And uh, that's the picture here. It is a consecrating thing. When James says anoint with oil, it's a very normal thing in their everyday life. It might have even been medicinal, although there's arguments against that. It's just one of those things. They go back to the person who is calling the elders in, asking for prayer, receiving the prayer, and in the midst of all of that, what they need in their little slice of life because their world has gotten so small because of that illness is they need to be reminded that they have not been forgotten by their church or by their God. And so James uses a mental picture for them that plays out physically that reminds them that they are set apart for God. God has not abandoned them. He's not abandoned you. It's not about the laying on of hands. It's not about the oil. It's about the reminder. It's about the move to connect that person with the community of faith. And so we come right back to where James wants us in the first place to live responsible Christian lives on our own, to live responsible Christian lives as a body. And now for those who just have failing faith, we go to them to remind them. I'll close with this. Musicians can go ahead and start coming up. The last part of this prayer 
is what grounds us in everything that I've just said. You are to do this, he says, in the name of the Lord. One of the discussions that I had in November relative to the back issues I was having, I had a guy come to my house and sit in my living room. He's not from here, so you wouldn't know him, certainly not from our church. Matter of fact, he's, one, he's from one of those churches that's more on the name it, claim it side of things. And it just astounded him that a pastor could be having health problems. That reminds me of one of those little charges I want to give you. It comes from my dad from many years ago. Never trust a faith healer who wears glasses. And so my dad gave me that one. And this guy gave me reason to see another truth. He just couldn't understand why a pastor who's supposed to be one of the righteous people could be having the health problems I was having. And he said, you need to have somebody come and lay hands on you and anoint you with oil and pray for you. And I said, got you covered. It's happened three times already. And that he didn't understand that. Then if that's happened, then why aren't you well? Well, you know the implied answer to that, right? Because my faith wasn't sufficient. Okay, maybe it's not. Still had pain. Still couldn't hardly walk. He said, I just don't get it. What's going on? And here was my answer to him. Okay, I don't say profound stuff very often, but I think this is profound. It's good for us to hear. So I give you a heads up when I get ready to say something smart. Here it is. Sometimes God doesn't heal us because it's important that we learn how to suffer well. You see, we live in a Western society that magnifies the individual. It's all about me. And, and we live in a society locally that is big time that. And now we have social media that could tear down an entire business or church because I didn't get treated well at that particular time. But this is not on the individual side of things. James is pushing for us this whole thing of you're part of the people of God. So you call the representative from the people of God and he comes in and he symbolically brings all of those people to your bedside with you and he prays and it reminds you that you're part of this and there is hope all of a sudden there. So James says... This is all done in the name of the Lord and that helps me when I'm the one called to the bedside of that person and I don't know how to pray for them. The best prayer I can ever pray is God, do what's best for them. That's in the name of the Lord. That's how this whole thing comes together for James. So where are you today? You should know finish where I started, you should know that there are a group of deacons in this church who take their responsibility to pray for you very seriously. And I love that about those guys. The question is, are you the kind of person that somebody else would call? Let's pray together. And so as we come to this prayer time, I'll just ask you, What's going on in your life? Are you the weak person? Are you the sick person today? And life has tumbled in on you and you're done. You're not alone. Jesus himself screams through eternity, 
I love you and you are not alone. How are you handling your life at this point? Where's God for you? And part of the answer to that, symbolically speaking, is in the chairs around you. We go through life together. That's James's intent for us to get this. Don't suffer alone. So now in this invitation time, will you respond to that? If you don't know what that means, you don't know what you need to do, you should know you've got to do something. Aaron, Stephanie are already in the back. I'll go to the back to the other side. We'll be back there to pray with you, talk with you. Whatever it is, don't walk out of here without doing business with the God who says, I have made sure that there is a mechanism for you not to be alone in your pain. Father, take this time, use it for your glory in Jesus' name.